If you like the Terrifying Lies podcast, I encourage you to share it and write a positive review, or at least rate it with the highest number of stars possible. The Terrifying Lies podcast, with music and stories by Craig Nibo. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Terrifying Lies podcast, where no prey meets no pay. I need to warn you that today's episode is part two of a four-part series. If you haven't heard part one, I advise that you go back and listen. Otherwise, you might find yourself a bit flammoxed. Is that a word? If not, it is now, at least in my mind. Today, we pick up where we left off with the band formerly known as Sharkskin and their pursuit of rock and roll, fame, and fortune. Characters from this story come from the world building behind a game called Chops, the rock and roll board game, a hilarious tabletop experience where you can build bands, play gigs, and hopefully rise to the top. You can pick up a copy of Chops on my website, craignibo.com. With no more delay, let's mount the gangway. I now present, for the shiver of your timbers, <laughs> Blunderbusted. Part two of four, written and performed by me, Craig Nibo. The man at the grill of the Boatswain Diner wore a peg leg. He owned the joint. One would have thought that with the Boatswain's reputation as the dive with the best chowder in all of Jersey and New York, he could afford a more comfortable prosthesis. One might suspect that the cook's story of losing the leg, a yarn involving a protracted encounter with a 20-foot-long bull shark, wasn't altogether true. One might have caught wind of another story in which the cook had lost the leg to a case of grossly underattended type 2 diabetes. One might suspect that he wore the peg as an affectation while at the diner and changed into a carbon fiber transfemoral prosthesis fitted with a computer-controlled knee after hours. The cook and owner of the boatswain went by the name Scantide Sammy. One might guess that to be a nickname. One might suspect that Scantide's real name was Max Slyker, that he lived not as he claimed in a run-down schooner called the Red-Eyed Blinker moored in the older docks called the Black 80s further up the piers. One might suspect that he had a 1,200-square-foot apartment in Manhattan's Upper West Side. In reality, nobody cared about Slantide's real name, what he drove, where he lived, or what he wore on his amputated leg. All they cared about was that he cooked at the grill of the boat swain between 11 a.m. and closing time on Sundays and Tuesdays, making the best chowder and chips that could be had in all of Jersey and New York. Scantide saw Barry and Dusty come into the joint and immediately went to work on their usuals. Chowder in a bread bowl for Dusty and cotton fries with malt vinegar for Barry. By the time they reached the front of the line, Scantide had their food ready. He loaded it into red plastic baskets and handed it to his regulars. I make you me duty, lad and lassie, Slantide said as he slid the order across the grill to them. Dusty and Barry greeted Slantide, took their food to the till, and paid a pretty girl who wore a piratesque costume. They carried their food to a corner booth and sat down. Dusty checked the time. It was five of eight. They expected Charlie Biscuit to be in late. They always ran a little in the red. But their bigger hope was that Melody Blackheart would grace them with her presence. With every second that ticked by, it seemed more likely that she would be a no-show. They glanced at their food and stretched the seconds along with sips of Coke. Did that really happen last night? 
Barry asked. I don't know. Should have you pinch me. The whole thing seems so surreal. Do you think she'll show? Of course she won't show. Who exactly is it that we're hoping will show? A new voice cut in. Barry and Dusty looked up. Charlie Biscuit stood near their table. The man had a way of sneaking up and catching them off guard. Make room, friends, Charlie said. Barry scooted deeper into the booth. Charlie Biscuit sat down and placed his red plastic basket of cotton chips, on which he had already begun munching, on the table. What happened to your hand? Dusty asked, inclining her head toward Charlie Biscuit's bandaged paw, index finger braced into a permanent point. Barry leaned forward and shifted his eyes this way and that. Check my six. Dusty looked over his shoulder and spotted a wedge-shaped man sitting in a booth across the diner. The man wore an open-collared, flower-printed shirt and two fists of gold rings. Are you in trouble again? Dusty asked, rolling her eyes. That astute fellow over there works for a venue out of Queens called the Snake Pit. I have two pieces of advice for you. One, never gamble against a man whose first name is a city. Two, be careful whose money you pick up to support your surefire blackjack system. Are you going to be okay? Barry asked, flicking an eye at the large fellow across the hall. The man inclined his head in either a threat or a greeting. Sure I will. Old Uncle Biscuit's always okay. Now, who's this person of interest you called me about so late in my beauty sleep last night? Barry drew in a deep breath and let it out slowly. Looks like she's not going to make it. The bell above the boatswain's entrance rang. Barry looked up in time to see Melody Blackheart walk inside. She wore her hair pulled back into a ponytail. She wore little makeup and had left the eye patch home. Her plain clothes helped her to blend into the crowd. Nobody gave her more than a glance as she entered the diner and got in line. I can't believe it, Barry said, not able to move his eyes away from her. Her simplicity, outside of all the glitz of her musical persona, gave her a beauty that he hadn't expected. Both both Dusty and Charlie looked over their shoulders at the same time. You gotta be kidding, Charlie said. Barry noticed that the man wearing the flower-printed shirt had also spotted Melody. The man couldn't place her, but he recognized her significance to Charlie Biscuit. He looked back and forth from Melody to Charlie a handful of times as if he was watching a tennis match. He went back to his food, but kept tabs on Charlie's little meeting. Tell me about her, Charlie said. She's unsatisfied with her current band. She wants to be an artist again. And she wants to join up with you guys, Charlie said. I don't believe it. She's an A-lister, or at least a B-plus lister. Hey, thanks, Dusty said. Don't take it personally, but you're nobodies. Barry watched Melody pick up a plate of fish and fries and walk to the piratus behind the checkout counter. He expected the checkout girl to recognize her, but the girl took Melody's cash and waved her along. I'll be right back, Barry said. He left the booth and walked over to Melody. All I'm saying, Charlie said to Dusty, using his best conspiratorial tone, is that this whole thing has every reason to fall apart. That is, unless you let me do the talking. Done, Dusty said, raising her hands in a standoff posture. Barry and Melody approached the table. Charlie, I'd like to introduce you to Melody Blackheart. Melody, this is our manager, Charlie Biscuit. Charlie reached out a hand. Melody took it with a stronger grip than expected. Pleasure, she said. Where do I sit? Barry offered her a place between he and Dusty. She scooted into the booth, picked up a bottle of malt vinegar, and drizzled it onto her fries. What is this gig that these two lovely people have told me about? Melody asked Charlie. Half-smile curled onto Charlie's lips. He raised his perma-pointy finger. Barry says you're after something different. Is that true? Melody picked up one of her fries and moved it back and forth in her fingers. 
It's no secret if you've read the underground rags that I've been in a bit of the outs with the rest of my band. Eh, I have a circling vulture. His name is Snorri the Skull Splitter. Charlie coughed, <coughs> raising his good hand to cover his mouth. Do you know Snorri? Melody asked. I went to see him when he first landed in Rhode Island. It made no secret that he was a singer looking for an act. I looked him up and paid him a visit. Just wanted to be friendly, you know, say hello. That and possibly offer him some of my services, which are primo. But he wasn't having any. I learned early in my career never to give up until you've heard the big N-O at least four times, usually with escalating intensity. I got to two with this guy, and then he threatened to throw me out of his second-story apartment window. I believed him. Great cats, I've never seen fists that large or an ego even larger. He has a reputation, Melody said, and the truth is he's after my gig. I had a couple of run-ins with him myself. Tried to warn the band, but they don't care. They like his sound, and then there's Karma. She likes a whole lot more about him than his singing. She's always been attracted to the dangerous type, even if they're dangerous to her. Charlie raised his pointing finger. Enough about the woes of social misbehavior and back to business at hand. And what business would that be? Melody asked, tossing a fry into her mouth. You're sitting at SOP with one of the up-and-coming music acts of the decade. Charlie opened his arms to Barry and Dusty. They have a new sound. It's fresh, it's dangerous, it's nautical. Who's ever been brave enough to hit the stage as a singer-slash-drummer duo? I heard him last night, Melody said. And what'd you think? Melody threw a fry into her mouth and glanced off into nothing as she chewed. She washed the mouthful down with a sip of Coke. Charlie, Dusty, and Barry leaned forward in anticipation of her answer. I thought they were good. They're a little rough around the edges, and they need some showmanship pointers. But I think there's real potential here. That's exactly what I think. Charlie said and put his good hand out for another shake. Melody looked at his hand, then up into his eyes. Charlie ducked his hand back under the table. I'm so grateful that you decided to take this meeting. And I think you'll be grateful too. But you know every band has their big gig. The one that puts them on the map. I believe the stars have aligned for shark skin. Melody winced at his mention of the band's name. They've been at it for a good three years and they haven't killed each other. They know how to communicate musically and have waded through all the blood and guts that, in the industry, we call paying our dues. They're ready for something different, something bigger, and I think I have just a thing. What is the thing? Melody asked. I booked him on a two-to-four-week engagement aboard a luxury liner. Pays minimal, but with benefits. What is the pay? Two hundred bucks a day, plus shares and the cruise's profits. I'll be honest, that's pretty small potatoes, Melody said. Barry put down his fork. He felt less hungry in degrees with every second of the conversation. True, but one must consider the shares in the luxury liner's profits. You ever heard of a little band called Trip Vicious? They're that goth dirge band out of Milwaukee, aren't they? That's right. They were nobodies until they took a six-week run aboard the said luxury liner for 200 a day plus shares. Do you know what they walked away with? Fifty large. And they were nobodies. They leveraged their five dimes to bootstrap their inaugural tour, and the rest is history. They have a huge fan base that supports every one of their releases to the tune of a quarter of a million units, and they are completely indie, so they get to keep it all. Now that is a nice living. What's the name of this said luxury liner? Melody asked. She's called the Filthy Vicar. Melody turned to Barry. So you weren't pulling my chain? No, ma'am. The Filthy Vicar has a reputation, Melody said. 
Darn right it has. Reputation of putting money right into the pockets of its entertainers. If you're ready for something new, if you're truly in the outs with your band and you want to shift gears and go somewhere where you might have a little bit more artistic control, I'm going to give you the opportunity to join with these two wonderfully talented people and take the cruise of your lifetime. What do you say? Melody plugged another french fry into her mouth and rolled it around thoughtfully. She looked down at Charlie Biscuit's left hand, his good hand. She looked Dusty Cannon in the eye and found a deep yearning there. She looked over at Barry. He mouthed a single word back at her. Please. I thought long and hard about this offer last night after I met Dusty and Barry. I decided even before I came here that if you asked me to join your band, I'd say yes. Well, of course I understand, Charlie said, his eyes half-closed as he shook his head back and forth. You are, after all, a tremendously successful outfit, and it would be, well, impetuous of us to assume... Wait a minute, what'd you say? Yes, I want to be in this band. I want to take a gig as an entertainer aboard the Filthy Vicar. Sounds fun. Well, in that case... Charlie produced a leather briefcase from under the table and snapped it open. He drew out a small sheaf of papers and began spreading them out on the table. There is one catch. The name Sharkskin isn't going to fly. When I booked you for the cruise, I booked you under the name Blunder Busted. As you know, a band's name is everything, and Blunder Busted is dynamite. Captain Frank Farkle, who owns the ship, went for a hook, line, and sinker. Pun intended. If it isn't a problem, from this day forward, you'll shed your skin, your shark skin, that is, and become Blunder Busted. Charlie plucked a golden pen from his lapel pocket and offered it to Melody Blackheart. What do you say? Oi, what's this? A new voice interrupted the meeting. Charlie started, craned his neck around to see Mr. Flower-Painted Shirt standing above him like a boulder. Hey, uh, well, it's nothing really. We're just dotting the I's and crossing the T's on a little contract here. Contract, eh? The big man said, let me see. He picked up the pages, put them in order, and began to read. Melody shot Charlie a sideways glance. Charlie shrugged and rubbed the skin below his nose with his perma-pointer. Everyone kept quiet while the big man read the contract from beginning to end. When he finished, he put it back on the table. Is this something my boss is going to want to have a piece of? Charlie stood up and faced the big man. This is absolutely not something to which your boss is entitled. The big man made a fist. Charlie backpedaled. However, Charlie lowered his voice. Should your boss... Want to negotiate a piece of my end outside of this contract? I'm all ears. Wise man, the big man said. He raised a hand and botched one of Charlie's ears. Charlie winced. Your ears look nice right where they are. I'm sure you'd like to keep them there. I sure would. Okay then, we'll talk soon. The big man in the flower-printed shirt rocked around and used four mighty steps to walk back to his booth. What was that all about? Melody asked. One learns to manage all different types of personalities in the business, Charlie said, offering Melody his golden pen again. Melody took the pen. She looked Charlie in the eye. Charlie freshened his smile. She glanced at Barry and Dusty. They both stared back at her, Dusty thrumming her fingers on the tabletop. Melody took the pen and signed on the dotted line. Everyone breathed a sigh of relief. Charlie put his signature on the final line and gathered all the papers. As he straightened them on the table, he fixed his face with his most practiced smile. You're not going to regret this, any of you. I have a feeling great things are afoot. It's just you mark the time and place because, my friends, this is the very moment at which Blunder Busted is born. So what's next? Barry asked, picking up his cod for another bite. His appetite had returned. 
No time like the present. Captain Farka wants you to report with all your back line assembled tomorrow morning at Pier 18, 4.30 a.m. sharp. And what does 4.30 a.m. look like? I've never seen it, Dusty said. Everyone laughed. The four of them stayed at the boat swaying for another hour, talking and joking, getting to know one another. By the time they walked out of the diner, the beginnings of a friendship had already bloomed. Barry guns, drums, appetite for destruction. By all indications, Barry will go to the grave with the secret of how he actually lost his right eye. Many stories, most allegedly propagated by Barry himself, circulate around the subject. Commonly, Barry tells the story of how he fell off the Lido deck of a luxury liner while playing a show with Demon Thrombus, one of his past bands, into the Pacific, where a great white shark attacked him. He claims to have lost his eye while fending off the shark with his bare hands. The Terrifying Lies podcast will return after this short commercial break. Welcome back to the Terrifying Lies podcast. Charlie offered a few words of solidarity as he got into his clunking old Ford and left them in the diner parking lot. The man in the flower-printed shirt pulled out behind Charlie Biscuit in his Mercedes. Is he going to be okay? Melody asked as she watched Charlie and the big man drive away. He's Charlie Biscuit. Somehow he always lands on his feet. Melody chuckled to herself. (laughs) I guess I'll see you guys in the morning. Everyone offered their goodbyes, and they parted ways, all wondering what would be next for Blunderbusted. Jericho Payne. Guitar. Appetite for destruction. As a 16-year-old boy, Jericho Payne's life changed dramatically when his father and stepmother, Turl and Luanda, tragically died in an industrial accident at the shoehorn factory in which they both worked. Due to Jericho's father's marriage and divorce habit, 11 wives in just under 25 years, the industrial accident left Jericho orphaned with 63 brothers, sisters, and step-siblings. Turl and Luanda left an inheritance of 22,000 to be evenly divided between their children and stepchildren. Jericho spent his entire inheritance, $343.75, on his first guitar, a little-known model called the Pliskin Scorpion. For the next 10 years, Jericho played on the streets for tips with only a mixed-breed chihuahua pit bull affectionately named Mr. Mercury as a friend. New York music producer Ted Diamond discovered Jericho, and the rest is history. Billows of mist rolled off the river and encircled the three members of Blunderbusted, the newly formed nautical-themed band. A stack of drum cases took up space on the dock, the fog leaving a sheen of dampness on the outsides of the plastic containers. Dusty wished she had opted for the more expensive weatherline cases to protect her custom kit from the elements, but at better than $150 per case, she couldn't afford them. She hoped the weather wouldn't warp her maple drum shells. Barry paced back and forth, hugging himself. He'd only brought a thin hoodie, and the morning cut right through to his skin. He stopped to stomp his feet. What's this? Melody asked, nodding toward a small motorboat, putt-putting toward Pier 18. A single man navigated the craft using the tiller of an outboard motor to steer. The musicians watched the boat come straight toward them, hands in pockets, bodies coiling against the cold. As the boat neared them, they snatched details about the slicker and hat-wearing driver. His skin, red, pocked, and damaged, had seen many hard seasons. He pulled the boat to the dock and offered the end of a rope. Barry took the lead and tied it off to a horn cleat bolted to the dock. You the band? The man asked as he stepped out of the boat. That's right, Dusty said. I'm here to fetch you. Adam Quick be my name. Is that the extent of your gear? 
He aimed a formidable chin toward the stacks of drum equipment and personal belongings. It is, Barry said. Lend a hand, shall we? Adams said. The four of them loaded the drum equipment and personal cases into Adams' boat. As they worked, Barry noticed the pearl handle of a knife jutting from Adams' boot. He tapped Dusty on the shoulder and pointed out the weapon. Adam quick caught the two of them staring. I see you spotted me pig sticker. He drew the knife free. Its blade gleamed in the limited morning light. She's a beaut. Not particularly balanced for the art of throwing, but... Adam flipped the knife around in his hand. With a flick of his wrist, he sent the knife whistling through the air. It thunked into the flesh of a docking post. One does what one must with what one has, Adam shrugged. Be a lady, won't you, and retrieve me sticker, Adam said, putting a hand on Dusty and giving her a gentle shove toward the post. At first, she raised her hand to resist, perhaps even to slap the man. But something in his soulless gaze changed her mind. She moved over to the post and grabbed the pearl handle of the weapon. The blade wouldn't easily budge. She used two hands and put a foot on the post for extra leverage. After three good tugs, the knife came free. Adam Quick stood near the decreasing stack of musical gear, feet apart, fists on his hips, watching Dusty work the knife free. He issued a rusty chuckle from his smoke-worn throat. She brought the knife back to him. He accepted it with one of his frying pan-sized hands and slid it back into the inner sheath of his boot. The boat rocked as they boarded. Dingy's yaw didn't bother Adam quick as he freed the line and leapt from the dock on board. The boat tipped until its edge ladled an inch or two of water from the river. Barry watched the stuff swill around the cases and hoped his shells wouldn't suffer any damage. Where are you taking us? Melody asked, one hand resting on a stack of drum cases, the other shoved deep into the pocket of her peacoat. We have special accommodations for the filthy vicar, Adam said. Some might frown on a proximity to the more established docks. Melody issued a pitiful smile. Adam Quick winked at her. Don't worry, none. You're in good company here. He pushed the ignition button on the outboard motor, causing the entire boat to vibrate. He thumbed the throttle and the boat traced away from Pier 18, leaving a swell of wake behind. Moisture in the mist built film on the musicians' faces as they putted downriver. Large cargo ships had cut into the estuary and were headed for various loading and unloading facilities along the port of New York. A few of the smaller crafts greeted Adam Quick's little putt-putt with a toot of a whistle or even a shouted hail, which Adam returned good-naturedly. I think he's taking us to Jerseyside, Barry said, as he used the sleeve of his hoodie to wipe a fresh drench of sea spray from his face. Why meet here and go there? Melody asked. Oh, I can think of a few reasons, Barry said. Yeah, me too. I don't like any of them. Adam guided the little craft around the southern tip of Manhattan Island and pushed up the Hudson, leaving Liberty and Ellis Islands in the distant south. They moved for the better part of an hour until Adam took a hard right and headed toward a covered port warehouse that stood on pilings on the east side of the Hudson. The warehouse acted like a shell with a magnanimous set of double doors. Adam navigated the little boat to a small opening in the western side of the port warehouse and ordered everybody to keep their heads down. Barry shifted some of the upper cases to the floor of the ship and ducked. Adam steered the little craft through a low-headed entryway into the warehouse. It took a moment for eyes to adjust to the inner chamber. The smells of petroleum, salt water, and old wood hit the members of Blunderbusted. Melody spotted the ship first. She stood nearly to the roof of the behemoth storage house, a sailing bark, three masts, sails furled. Melody had seen the bark on occasion heading out of the Hudson into the open ocean, She'd thought of it as a novelty ship for expensive tourists' day cruises and possibly an occasional film set. 
She had no idea that the vessel was equipped for long voyages. The thought of playing as a minstrel aboard a wooden sailing ship straight out of the 18th century got her blood flowing. Melody forgot the cold. She oogled the ship. She's a beauty, isn't she? Adam said. All three members of Blunderbust had nodded as they took in the expanse of the vessel. Adam aimed the little boat to a dock and threw a line to a man who'd been waiting, a poke of cigarette jutting from the corner of his mouth. The man tied the boat off to a cleat, then shouted at a group of sailors who had been at a game of cards on a fold-out table. The group of hands got to work, moving cases of Blunderbust's back line from the little motorboat up a gangplank and into the ship. Let me show you to your quarters, Adam said as he helped the musicians from his little craft up onto the dock. The boys will stow your gear. Adam led them up the gangway onto the spar deck. Sailors prepped the ship, towing lines, checking equipment, making minor repairs. None of the working midshipmen even made contact with the band as Adam escorted them to a mid-deck port and ladder. Step lively now. Seen more than one landlubber fall hind overhead down these slippery rungs. Adam descended into the gun deck. The musicians followed, holding tight to the rails as they downclined. Adam led them along a short hall toward the aft of the ship. He stopped at the end of the hall. Closed doors flanked him on either side. This is where you'll be slinging your hammocks. He opened three of the doors. Behind each door was a small room, no larger than ten by eight feet. Just enough space for a locker, a washbowl, and a pitcher. Where are the beds? Barry asked as he peered inside one of the rooms. Adam chuckled dryly to himself. <laughs> Each member of the crew is only allowed 18 inches to hang his hammock. Believe me when I say that you have a king's accommodations. You'll find your hammock stowed in the lockers. I'll arrange to have your personal belongings brought down to you in short order. I've never tied a hammock, Dusty said. You'll find instructions clearly marked with diagrams in your lockers. Should you need further assistance, don't hesitate to find me, but bear in mind my pipe is full. I will be quite busy until we shove off. Thank you, Mr. Quick, Melody said. She pushed up on her toes and planted a peck on his red cheek. Adam smirked as she let him go. She hadn't been able to wipe the smile from her face since she had first set eyes on the ship. You best be slinging your hammocks and getting sleep while you can snatch it. it. Becomes a bit turbulent in open waters. Might be the last good rest you get. I'll leave you to your devices. Undoubtedly, the captain will want to see you once we shove off. I'll be along directly when he orders your company. Welcome aboard the filthy vicar. Adam snapped off a quick sideways nod, then walked away, his heavy boots clunking on the hardwood planks as he disappeared around the corner. Melody put her arms around Daisy and Barry. Thank you, both of you. This is going to be something that we'll never forget. She released them. They stood in the hallway, discussing the logistics of their gig. In the end, they decided to take it one moment at a time. They parted ways and went into their separate cabins. Barry found a canvas hammock and a few blankets in his locker. As promised, he found a laminated brochure that took him step by step through the process of properly hanging a hammock. Once the canvas had been slung, he stepped back to check his handiwork. He agreed with Melody. This was going to be an adventure. He hoisted himself up into the hammock and pulled a blanket over his body. He turned on his side, closed his eyes, and thought about how warm Melody had felt when she'd put her arm around him. Karma Cure. Drums. Crush. Karma Cure, notorious femme fatale rocker, climbed quickly to fame as a young drummer with teen pop band Skinning Tuesday. Skinning featured an all-male lineup, with the exception of Karma. Her band enjoyed two mega hits, my heart's not your shift grip, and if you love me, put it in writing. After the release of Skinning's second album, 
Personnel complications became more than the band could stand. Derek the Decimator, singer, left the band, stating that karma had gone crazy and started attacking the other members of the band with swords. Soon after Derek left the band, Jericho Payne, guitarist, was arrested on dogfighting charges. Oscar Shinsplint claimed that he'd become a ringtail lemur and insisted on being set free. Marblehead, bass, hung up music altogether and opted to wander the hills of Colorado in a search for ancient conquistador gold. Critics of Karma Cure claim that her obsessive-compulsive nature around men caused all of her bandmates to at least temporarily exude symptoms of serious psychosis. The filthy vicar made way at a quarter of six in the morning. Dock employees opened the voluminous double gates to let the ship out of her moorings. On captain's orders, her twin engines coughed to life and she slipped over the water in a smooth line. Barry guns roused at the ship's jolt as it left the storage warehouse but the monotone drone of the engines lulled him back to sleep. Melody slept with a smile on her face as her hammock pendulumed back and forth in a gentle arc. The hours passed her by like silent moments, leaving her to her dreams. Living with the duress of her precarious membership in Skinning Tuesday, she hadn't slept soundly in months but her sleep came to an abrupt close when a grinding sound screamed through the structure of the ship, deck, floor, and masts, with a shrill mechanical failure. Like the rest of the ship, Melody's cabin vibrated in a chunking, stuttering whine, threatening to throw her out of her hammock. She opened her eyes and sat up in the canvas. She dropped out of her hammock and looked out the room's grimy port. The ship seemed to have given up its guts in one pain breath and was drifting to an unpowered slant. Melody went across the hall to Dusty's cabin and knocked on the door. Come in, Dusty said. Melody entered. Both Barry and Dusty stood at a port window, staring outside into the infinite ocean. What's going on? Melody asked, settling behind the two other musicians. We're adrift, Barry said. I thought I heard something wrong even as we were pulling out of the moorings. Can they fix it? Dusty asked. How should I know? I'm starting to wonder what kind of a gig we signed up for, Dusty said. What kind of a ship is this? Melody put a hand on Dusty's shoulder. We're several steps away from panicking. I don't know about you, but I've just come out of the best sleep I've had in months. The nautical thing was always a marketing ploy for me, part of my stage persona, but I'm starting to think that some of me longs for the sea. Let's just stand by and see what happens for now. Someone pounded on the cabin door. Dusty crossed the room and opened up. Adam Quick stood across the threshold, his hat gone revealing a blonde horseshoe of advanced male pattern baldness. What's going on? Dusty asked before Adam had a chance to open his mouth. This old vessel. She has her good days and her bad ones. Nothing to worry about. Our mechanics are working on the engines. We've been in deeper jams and gotten out jolly quick. But that isn't the reason I came to see you. Dusty folded her arms. Barry leaned against the wall. The captain, he wants to see you. He feels now's as good a time as any. He'd like you to visit his cabin straight away. If it be all the same to you. We have nothing but time, Melody said. Right this way, then. Adam Quick led them through the deeper guts of the ship to the captain's cabin. He knocked with one knuckle, just loud enough to make a discernible hail. Captain, be ye in? Enter, the man's voice said. Adam turned to the three musicians. Mind what he says now. Although we might not be casting such and such as a formal order, you'd best be interpreting every little thing he asks as the gospel of the captain. The three musicians nodded. 
Adam opened the cabin door. The captain sat behind a desk as large as the room could reasonably harbor. A rack of books, antique instruments, maps, rustic decor fastened the walls. The shelves stowed its belongings behind glass cupboard doors or hampen spring webbing. The captain looked up at his visitors and smiled. He wore a bowler hat, authentic beaver skin by the look of it. Beneath his starched shirt and dark jacket, he wore a cravat, silk, black, with white polka dots. He could have been 70 or 90 years old. He concealed much of his age with a goodly application of makeup. He stood up as three musicians entered his cabin. He gestured toward a few chairs across from his desk. Please, sit down. I'm Captain Frank Farquhar at your service. He finished his introduction with a hand flourish and a snap of his heels. Melody looked over at Barry, crossed her arms, and raised an eyebrow. Barry made a little cut-it-out gesture with his flat hand as he sat down. Has your journey been quite comfortable thus far? Captain Farkle said as he sat down on the throne-like chair behind his desk and steepled his fingers over the writing he'd been doing. Quite comfortable, Captain, Melody said, offering her best smile, the one she reserved for cute older men. Well, that's very nice. We're most fortunate to have you aboard the Filthy Vicar. You know, she's been in service for over 300 years, in a constant state of renovation and improvement. Her engines have been churning since the early 60s when my father had them installed. Regrettably, like their captain, they're showing their age. We're adrift, Barry said, rubbing one hand along his long thigh. Captain Farkle shot Barry a look that caused him to clop his mouth shut. Then his good-natured smile returned to his face. True, we are temporarily adrift, but I assure you, with a ship of this age, showing her broken seals as she does, I have made it a habit to retain the best mechanics in the eastern United States. I assure you, they will have her engines humming again, and we will be underway within the watch. Someone knocked on the cabin door. Come, Captain Farkle said. Adam Quick entered, holding a piece of paper with something handwritten on it, kind of official report. Begging your pardon, Captain, but I've just received a report from the watch lieutenant on Mr. Anderson, sir. Mr. Anderson? Yes, sir. The new chap we picked up in the Carolinas. Captain Farkle thought for a moment, then his face went grave. What was his first name? We have so many Mr. Andersons on board. His name be Matthew, sir. Oh, yes, Matthew Anderson. May I? Captain Farkle took the report from Adam. He spread it on his desk and looked it over, running a finger down the couple of handwritten paragraphs. I see, he said. He opened a long, slender drawer in his desk and drew out a small filing box full of cards. He riffled through it and drew out a card with a red spot printed on its center. Adam Quick's face went slack as the captain picked up a stapler, prepared to affix the card to the report. He hesitated just before plunking the documents together. After a second look at the report, he drew another card from the box, a white card with a black spot printed on its center. He snapped them together with the stapler and handed them to Adam quick. Adam hesitated for a moment and cocked his head to the side. Are you sure about this, sir? He really is a fine lad. Has plenty of work in him if we can just move him along somehow. Captain Farkle's face split into a broad grin. Quite sure, Mr. Quick? Would you like to file a formal statement of dissent against my judgment? Adam stepped back. Absolutely not, sir. I'm in full agreement with your actions. Then deliver this to the lieutenant, please. Yes, sir. Adam Quick took the report and its attachment and left the room, shooting Melody Blackheart a glimpse on his way out. Captain Farkle put his hands flat on the desktop. Now then, back to business. 
The terms of your contract are simple. You're to entertain the crew and passengers nightly in three 45-minute sets with breaks between. You'll play from the quarterdeck using its raised structure as your stage. For this, I'll give each of you lodging and $200 daily per diem. Is that your understanding of our contract? Barry Guns raised his hand. This isn't prep school, lad. You don't need to raise your hand. Barry lowered his hand and put it on his lap. Our, uh, agent, Charlie Biscuit, said there might be opportunities to earn extra money on this gig. Captain Farkle leaned back in his chair and put his hands behind his neck. He looked up at an oscillating chandelier that hung from the center of his cabin's ceiling and allowed his face to slacken into a pleasant articulation. Lad, he said, you ask about opportunities? I assure you that I am an opportunist. Should such occasion arise to fill your coffers with something extra, I'll do what I can for you. However, prosperity always comes affixed to its own price. The engines aft of the ship coughed and fell off. Captain Farkle touched his head sideways and raised an ear. The engines coughed again, this time turning over with a series of sputtering blasts. After a moment of inconsistent idling, they died with a stutter. I'm a believer in the rule of three, Captain Farkle said, raising a hand to his ear. Let's hear it now. The engines ignited a third time. They stuttered for a moment in a patternless attempt to work themselves up to a steady idle. Come on, old woman, Captain Farkle said. The engines issued another voluminous belch, then settled into a consistent drone. A celebratory shout came from outside the cabin door. Captain Frank Farkle spread his hands and smiled. This old ship and I, we share our destinies. Like her, I feel my days winding down as my health becomes less predictable. I don't know how many more voyages the filthy vicar might have in her soul before I'm forced to moor her forever. She's a beautiful ship, Melody said. Aye, that she is old, but beautiful. Captain Farkle stood up to his full, stately height. Your stage awaits you. See Mr. Quick about setting up your gear and testing your sound. Your first engagement begins an hour into the last dog watch. Now, if you will excuse me, the captain gestured toward the door. The musicians stood up, offered their salutations, and left the captain's cabin. Tonight would be their first show aboard the Filthy Vicar, and they planned to make a good impression. This has been Blunderbusted, part two of four, written and performed by me, Craig Nibo. What inspired my friends and I to record not one, but two pirate-themed albums? Well, here's the truth behind the endeavor. Decades ago, I watched an obscure movie called The Blood of Heroes, starring Rutger Hauer. The film depicts a league of apocalyptic athletes that play a bloody sport where players try to carry a goat's skull down the field and score goals by impaling it on a pike. Other than that, there are no rules, so many players don't walk off the field. It's been a while, but I remember the movie being pretty good. The movie depicted a ramshackle band for probably less than 10 seconds. The band played an odd assortment of experimental instruments with a raw sound. 
I thought the band was cool, so I wrote a song along their lines. I felt the band had a bit of a pirate flair, so I went nautical with my song. I brought it to rehearsal, and, as a band, we learned it. We had so much fun that Rob Griffin, Rust Monster's guitarist, came back the next week with another pirate song. By and by, these songs turned into an entire album, which we called Flight of the Filthy Vicar. And so, for today, I thought I'd give you the first Rust Monster pirate song ever written. It's called Bosun's Song. Is it our best song? Probably not. But there is something about being first. Are the chasers locked? Yeah! Are the hatches down? Yeah! Are the bills pumping bills back to the sea? Yeah! Is it be Yeah! Is the captain wrong? Yeah! Are the bullets fast and tight about the clean? Yeah! Feel our canvas now. Now! Is it on? Watch on. Yeah! Is steady now? Yeah! To the south by southwest, tack more open heart. Yeah! Oh, hold the bells and calls with kindly on the star deck. Any lover will be bound and thrown out in the sea. Oh, hold the bells and calls, no hands clap on the ring. Any lover will be bound and kill drag underneath. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Terrifying Lies. Here's the good news. There's plenty more to come. If you'd like to support Terrifying Lies, click on the links in the episode description. You can also send tips via Venmo. At very least, I'm so glad to be in this room with you, where reality meets a haze of horror and broken fables. Until next time, I wish you sweet dreams, or should I say, sweet nightmares. This has been the Terrifying Lies Podcast. Please, come again. You're welcome here. If you like the Terrifying Lies Podcast, I encourage you to share it and write a positive review or at least rate it with the highest number of stars possible.